Welcome to episode one of the 2020 International Pajama Party. I am your host, Miss Angela, coming to you from my attic apartment, and I am here to help fill in the gaps and maybe give, hopefully give, a bigger picture of what you're doing in your individual studies. Now, the coronavirus has delayed, canceled, and just generally confused everything for a while, at least for the next couple of weeks, but we are just going to carry on and just make it happen anyway. Uh, God is in the details. He is in control. Nothing under his control is ever out of control. Nothing about any of this surprises him, and so if he's not going to lose sleep over it, neither are we. So, what I want to do today is I want to back up a smidge and do a recap of last lesson. We discussed the War of 1812, and I believe the PowerPoint is on Edmodo. If not, it will be by the time this episode is posted and available to you. And um, we basically did a quick, quick tour of what is probably the most embarrassing, pointless, hubris-inflated war that America has ever fought. Um, we looked at the causes of the war. Uh, we talked about the French. We talked about the British. We talked about American hubris. Uh, we talked about the different responses. You know, the Puritans lectured on morality, the Westerners wanted to rescue Canada from being Canadian, the political leaders were just looking for ways to stay in office. So, you know, typical 2020 type, you know, nonsense going on there. Um, we looked at the difficulties encountered. We talked about the privateers, the British blockade, um, New England resistance, um, the Invasions that weren't really invasions, or rather invasions that backfired spectacularly. Um, and uh, we ended really with the Battle of New Orleans and Andrew Jackson and the crazy lopsided victory that took place there, even though the battle began several days after official peace was declared. But again, the information age that they were in, very different from ours. Uh, back then, several months getting the memo. Now we can do podcasts and FaceTime and other things. So uh, the Battle of New Orleans, sort of a mixed bag there. Um, but the last slide that we didn't get to was the one about lessons learned. Um, and this is where we have to stop and think, with the War of 1812, because this is a, a lesson that transfers forward into the American Civil War and into all wars following. Um, and that is three things in general. And the first one is really the one that applies to this and future wars. And that is simply this. Sometimes you can't talk your way out of a problem or even fight your way out of a problem. Sometimes you have to exhaust your way out. Because if you remember the War of 1812, when it ended, it pretty much put everything back to the status quo. Um, 
it wasn't really a war with a clear victor. It just basically said, hey, let's go home, lick our wounds, and ignore each other for a while and try to get on with life. The end. Um, so, uh, so basically with the War of 1812, it ended not because there was a clear and away victor on all counts, but because everybody was just tired, especially the British. They had already been fooling with all of this nonsense from Napoleon for several years prior. And then, you know, this lumped on top of it. Everybody just wanted to go home. Um, so the other lessons learned from this uh, is that Americans realized, at least for a while, hmm, that they couldn't just bully their way into foreign policy. Um, not to say that we haven't tried that same tactic since, but this was our first real wake-up call, that we couldn't just be the schoolyard bully going in and say, hey, everybody behave themselves. Again, we have tried it since with other conflicts, um, with mixed success, but none of them really successful. Uh, but in the days following the War of 1812, this is sort of like that first reality check where we realized that eh, that really wasn't a good idea. And even though we have applied that same kind of hubris to other situations, we've at least tried to be more subtle about it, which is good and bad, mixed bag. I don't know. Hubris just never ends well. Again, go back to the whole the right thing done in the wrong way ultimately leads to disaster. And repeat, ad nauseum, rinse, lather, repeat. Um, the third thing that came out of this was that these realizations, you can't be the schoolyard bully. Sometimes you just have to exhaust your way out of a bad situation. These re realizations raised up a whole new generation of moral voices. Now, these are the moral voices that are going to carry us forward from the War of 1812 to the days leading up to the American Civil War. And of course, we're talking about William Henry Harrison, Andrew Jackson, um, the Monroe Doctrine, and John Quincy Adams. Now, at this point, I should remind the class that we are about to do something that is not typical for your American history class. I am going to leapfrog, essentially, over about 45 years of American history to the eve or the uh, couple years leading up to the eve of the American Civil War. Now, part of this is just a logistical issue that has to do with me being out for so long prior to the school closure. Um, and part of it is because I feel like in talking about things like the Trail of Tears, uh, the Indian Wars, Westward Expansion, um, you know, those sorts of things are better dealt with as like a cohesive narrative rather than breaking it up to part one before the Civil War, part two after the Civil War. Um, so it's not conventional. It's certainly not what your textbook does. But just understand that once we get through the Civil War, that we will backtrack to about 1820 and hit some, some core issues 
including the uh, the plight and treatment of the Native Americans, um, as it runs from that point up to about the 1880s. And then that way, when things intersect with the American Civil War, I should be able to refer to X or Y or Z, and you get it because now we've already talked about all the war stuff. So all that being said, I am going to put us all in the TARDIS. Okay, we are now up to not quite 1860, but close. Um, this is where we need to talk about the voices that start coming on stage politically um, that are not so much moral as they are loud. Uh, these are voices who are demanding action. They are demanding that certain things be dealt with along certain lines with no compromise. And, uh, and they begin to replace these moral voices that we have had over the previous decades. Now, what I want to do here is I want to focus on some giants in Congress at the time, specifically Clay, Calhoun, and Webster. And then I also want to focus on the fire breathers. Now, fire breather is a term that refers to a hothead in politics who just really wants a fight. Uh, these are the people who would demand war without really thinking through all of the whys and wherefores of, eh, is this really a good idea? Will this actually accomplish anything? And if we do go to war, is this the right time? Are we going about it the right way? Etc. So you get the idea. Fire breathers, breathing fire, stirring up uh, tension uh, among national leaders. Uh, these are the potsters. These are the ones who start, um, you know, uh, growing this debate about North and South, free states and slave states. Um, and they put all of their effort in creating this atmosphere of tension with the intent that America needs to come down with the sledgehammer, that we just need to deal with these things once and for all at whatever cost. Now, the thing about politics in America, once you get to the 1850s, is that where the divide starts to evidence itself well before the firing on Fort Sumter, okay? Um, and it has to do, no surprise to any of my Lighthouse students, it has to do with worldviews. And it has to do with whether or not a given person or group or side of the argument is taking a more revolutionary mindset, a more reactionary mindset, or a more reformational mindset. Well, it shouldn't surprise anybody that in this conflict, there were very few people who had the ref reformational mindset, this idea that 
you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that you uh, continue to make changes within the structure that exists. Um, and that sort of change is gradual. Uh, it can be slow and it's painful in its own way because things are not happening as quickly as our human impatience would like. Um, so if you have a reformational mindset, then you're looking for cultural balance and you're keeping a Trinitarian view of things that checks and balances. Because even if you take the U.S. government, legislative, judicial, executive branch, I mean, even your basic history book diagrams show this as being triangular most of the time um, or circular, it just checks and balances. It flows each one into the other. That's the Trinitarian view at work within our government structure. Thank you, Founding Fathers. Anyway, we've already been on that soapbox. So, but that is if you have the reformational mindset, then you approach problem solving that way. Well, you get into this ongoing argument between free states and slave states, north and south, fire breathers and peacekeepers, and a new dynamic starts to evidence itself. The north becomes consumed with a revolutionary mindset. So they are focused on the heresy of the one. They wanted to focus everything on the one, the individual. But then the only way rights can be reserved is if we all stay one, have one cohesive mind about things and diversity becomes dangerous. Okay. On the flip side of that, the South had a more reactionary mindset. This is the heresy of the many. This is the idea that you break apart unity into its individual parts, while diversity is a much more precious concept. So the idea that everybody is on their own homestead doing their own thing, and you render unto Caesar what is Caesar, but most of it is happening in your immediate sphere of influence, and it's okay if you disagree with your neighbor. So that kind of diversity. So keep in mind, we're not at this point in the discussion, we're not talking about ethnic or cultural diversity, at least not in the sense of what we think of in 2020, but more of um, a, diverse, a diversity of policy or laws or rules, that kind of thing. Um, and so diversity of lifestyle and opinion, therefore, must be protected. So this is really the point where the South gets the idea that everybody needs to have their homestead, their land, their gun, their hunting dog, and just defend their right to live out life the way they see it. And, you know, don't, don't you set foot on my property if you are coming at me with anything else. Okay. So Right there, that explains a lot of how we are even as a culture in America today, uh, because people in the South still have this very individualist mindset. Pull you up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Um, you know, defend your right to own guns, 
to, um, you know, handle your land uh, the way that you want, your property the way that you want. Now, you go up north, specifically in the New England area, and it's all about unity. It's all about being single-minded, um, and while diversity of culture and ethnicity, ethnicity and lifestyle choices may be celebrated. Um, if you deviate from the political unison of how to handle things, then you're the heretic. Um, you're the one that needs to be straightened out. So, you know, at this point in time, I mean, pick a topic, any topic, um, global warming, how to handle the um, coronavirus quarantine, how to handle international relations, um, what to do about President Trump. I mean, pick a topic. It doesn't have to be super specific. Um, you quickly begin to see that dividing line where Southerners traditionally will fight for the right to disagree with each other. And the Northerners have more of this mindset of, no, we are all like, we are all in this wagon. And if you are not in this wagon with us, then you are crazy town. Um, so that's your revolutionary mindset versus reactionary mindset. So one side really championing um, the singleness, singleness of mind in America, and the other one really championing, championing the individuality of America. Okay. Now, along with this, we get differing attitudes toward authority. Again, if you are going by a biblical worldview, then ideally um, you want objective authority, which is really possible only when it comes to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, because we as sinners, we are not truly going to be objective about anything. Now, where does this take us in the dynamic between North and South? Well, if you're looking at your chart in front of you, then um, on the North side of things, what we start to see emerge in American culture here is progressive authority. This is authority earned by force of ideas or arms, never to be respected in and of itself. Whatever works is right. So um, earning authority by force of ideas, force of arms, this starts to sound very modern and very relevant. Um, one of the things that we are stuck in right now in the year 2020 is something that one of my friends calls shoutdown culture, where if you yell long enough, if you throw a big enough tantrum, if you intimidate your neighbors enough, then you hopefully will get everybody on your side, mostly because they're just too scared to speak out against you. Okay. So William Lloyd Garrison's uh, quote um, that you have there on your chart, what is right is not the Bible or the constitution, but what brings progressiveness in a society. Okay. So it's not about absolute truth but it's about, are we taking care of the current agenda without any consideration about whether or not the agenda itself 
is good or right or timely or you know if there's some option or some aspect that we have overlooked okay and so these are the people that even back in the day were calling for the outright abolition of the constitution so one of the irony about american history cuz right now we hear a lot of um, sound bites in social media, news, whatever, about how the Constitution itself is outdated. Some people say that the Constitution is itself unconstitutional, that it needs to be replaced, that the Constitution was for an earlier time and an earlier mindset. And so there's this debate about whether or not America needs to still function under the Constitution. Well, that is not a new argument. That argument has actually been around for a very long time. And the Civil War really begins to highlight uh, this, um, this debate, this disagreement, um, even though technically we're not into uh, the war just yet. Now, on the, the side of the South, where uh, Southerners traditionally camp out, is traditional authority. And this is authority passed down through traditional means, the patriarchy, if you will. Um, not everyone can have it. It is inherited. It is uh, passed down from generation to generation. Um, the idea of primogenitor, uh, firstborn inherits all, like this is very much in play. And even though the South in today's culture um, has lost a lot of these earlier Southern trappings, um, and some of that's been a good thing and some of that's not been so good, um, th but there's still been this carryover of tradition. It's like, well, my daddy did it, and my granddaddy, and my great-granddaddy, and by golly, I'm going to stand here on this plot of ground, and I'm going to do just like my forebears, and here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, it, it's, it's this very um, uh, sort of patriotism to family and to tradition within families or within cultures or even subcultures. Um, so Jefferson Davis, you've got that quote there, my constitution, right or wrong. So in other words, even if, say, the constitution um, needs an amendment, needs some tweaking that, okay, we can look at this, but we stand by the constitution. And if you look at America today, you will see that the, that debate about the constitution is pretty much drawn between regions and it's it's not really fair to say between north and south because you know you've got california over there you've got colorado you've got arizona that all you know other states that have uh, very liberal reputations um but there's there's still this dividing line between are we being progressive are we handling the agenda and we stand by the constitution right or wrong and you know, we, we hold the line on this. Okay. So, uh, so the bottom line, especially for back in the day, the idea was that the constitution had been handed down and who are we to question it? Like, you know, we, we, we shouldn't question this. Now, next category here, personal hierarchy. 
okay? So in, this is in the column for God. So anything in that center column, like these are the perfect qualities. This is the ideal. Um, on the northern side of things, we have an informal hierarchy. Anyone can rise to the top by any means. A moral voice that's loud becomes the new elite. Again, cascading forward into what we have now, which is shout down culture. Um, and anyone can rise to the top. This is this plays into the very American idea of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, if you've got your gun, your hunting dog, and your your knife, then you can pretty much take on anything. Um, but uh, it, it's got a dark underbelly too. Sin always does. Um, on the southern side of the equation, we have formal hierarchy. So these there are rules or regulations for those who can rise to the top. Celebrity is no right to speak on the issues. So if you think of, if you've ever seen the opening scenes of, say, Gone with the Wind, um, there is a lot implied in those opening scenes about the rules and regulations, uh, this culture of manners that are not just manners, but just, um, you know, People of a certain class, people of a certain color, people of a certain upbringing do or don't do certain things. And, um, you know, everyone knows their place. Uh, and, and so there's that formal hierarchy. Then you get into ethics. Now, immutable ethics is what belongs in the center block. You know, this is, this is the divine wisdom of God you know, you know, the immutable ethics, the unchanging law of God. You know, there's no outside force that can erode God's word. Uh, people can stop their ears to it. They can do like Uncle Andrew and the magician's nephew and go, la, 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 la. There is no lion. The lion is only roaring. He's not really talking. And you can talk yourself stupid, basically. Tell yourself lies so deeply. Um, and so frequently that you begin to believe the lie. But as far as God's truth, God's justice, it is always there. Immutable ethics. On the northern side of things, we've got the pragmatic ethics. Whatever works. We're looking to be practical. We're looking for what um, is the most efficient, expedient, again, you know, sometimes throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we're also looking to be very practical about whatever the problem is. Um, on the southern side, um, you have inherited ethics. My mama raised me better. That that's that's where we're coming from here. Our mamas taught us better than that. <laughs> okay, and now how often have we all heard that? I mean, this is Georgia. This is a very southern a deeply entrenched Southern culture. Um, and even with the way social media and the internet and what have you has brought other factors into our culture and eroded X and Y and Z, uh, there is still a, that part right there. Your mama raised you better. Like I know as a kid that I had complete strangers that in public, if they saw me misbehaving, if my mama didn't notice, they would pull me aside and say, 
I know your mama raised you better. You better straighten up, young lady. And I, I mean, I don't, about, don't know about now, but in the 70s and 80s, that was kind of expected and nobody thought anything about that uh, because that was an absolute that anybody could appeal to. Okay. Um, so inherited ethics. Then we get into the, the idea of justice. Mediatory justice is the way God handles things. This is where, again, if you think God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is our mediator, the Holy Spirit is our mediator, um, the sacrifices from the Old Testament, it, it, that was all part of the mediation of, of keeping the, the people of Israel reconciled to God, uh, dealing with their sins so that they could be presentable in, uh, before God. Um, so mediatory justice. On the northern side of the equation, the, the popular modus operandi is litigious justice. This is a fancy way of saying, take it to court, make it a lawsuit, use the courts to make, change, and manipulate law, sue and change the rules whenever necessary. Hello, 2020. This is the atmosphere that we breathe right now. And this is not a northern centric thing anymore. This is, hello, welcome to America. We give you this with your passport and your citizen papers. Um, on the southern side of things, uh, we have conservative justice. You use the courts to enforce what has always been done because change is scary. Now, this is one that, um, and really all of this, I mean, if it's, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of running through some of this because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to make this the podcast to just like end all podcasts. Um, so I'm belaboring some points, not others, but, but keep in mind that whether you're going down the Northern column or the Southern column, like all of these have pros and cons. It's good to be practical. It's good to remember what your mama taught you, but Look at this conservative justice idea for a moment. Using the courts to enforce what has always been done because change is scary, like never accepting change ever at all. This is not good. This is what allowed um, uh, Governor Wallace of Alabama in the 1960s to get up at a microphone and start declaiming segregation today, segregation yesterday, segregation forever because change is scary. We want to keep things separate. We want to keep the status quo because once we break down those barriers and allow people of color to enmesh more, uh, you know, intricately with our lives, we don't know what that's going to look like. So rather than, you know, cross into unknown territory, we're going to keep the colored water fountains. We're going to keep the colored entrances to the back of, you know, a most or all businesses the, the blacks need to go to their own churches. The whites need to go to theirs. We're just going to keep the status quo. So, you know, using the courts to enforce what has always been done is good to a point if you are relying on the wisdom of God. But if you're doing it only because you are scared of change, then you have wandered into a very dangerous place. Um, and then the last category, uh, central column there, Covenantal, con uh, sorry, covenantal continuity, okay? So God makes a covenant, he makes a promise, amen and amen, that is how it is. 
Um, and even with, say, you know, Old Testament sacrifices, and then Jesus comes, makes a new covenant in uh, the New Testament, it's not so much that he was kicking the Old Testament to the side, but he was fulfilling um, the Old Testament. He was the scapegoat for everyone. He was that perfect sacrifice once and for all. It wasn't that he was destroying the law, but he was fulfilling it to an extent that the physical sacrifices no longer had to be made. Now we could rely on Christ our Savior as our intercessor, our perfect uh, uh, sacrifice, etc. So that's covenantal com continuity. In the North, what we see is ideological continuity. Whatever it takes to preserve the ideas we have, even we have, even if we have to kill people to enforce our ideas. Okay, so you know sometimes it doesn't escalate to that level of violence. But you've paid attention to the news. There are still, even today, there are aspects where there has been a deliberate effort to shut down opposing arguments to the point of silencing them entirely. Maybe they're not being killed. Um, maybe they're not being imprisoned. But certain people have been run off the air. Certain um, news agencies have had a hard time uh, staying in the loop. There was um, a few years ago, a, a large push to shut down certain news outlets because it was not on that um, ideological, pragmatic, informal, informal, litigious side of doing things. Um, and then on the southern end of things, uh, that, that that other column, we have generational continuity. We just have to live with the flaws inherent in society. So again, this is another way of saying keeping the status quo. Uh, people in power stay in power. Those who are not, well, they just need to keep minding their own business. Um, you know, in earlier decades, this is you know, you know, segregation isn't nice, but it's the status quo. We're going to leave it alone, etc. Okay, so that that everything I've covered in this chart, like this, is a big tangled ball of string. And again, I can't take credit for all of this. Um, if you want to look at source material, um, I can point you to the Giles Kirk curriculum. And Dr. George Grant, the original author of, um, of this information and of this chart in particular. But I do want to point out as a parting comment here, this um, quote down at the very bottom. And this is a George Grant quote. Uh, radical liberalism and radical conservatism commit almost the same error despite the fact that they look like polar opposites. Radical ideology always leads to, oh my goodness, radical ideology always leads to disaster. <clears throat> uh, so basically saying that if you're the extreme on one end, if you're the extreme on the other end, at the end of the day, when you survey the damage, it looks a lot alike. So not to champion one side over the other, because honestly, this is not really nowadays a North versus South thing, 
But this is part of the political polarization that we live with in this country today. Um, do you dig in over the, the traditional way or are you super obsessed on, you know, how practical a solution is? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a sticky wicket and um, hubris and sin of, of politicians and, and individual uh, uh, judges and jurors and, and plaintiffs and, and all of this get mixed into it. And um, it, it's, it's a Gordian knot uh, that is not untangled easily, not unless God comes in with his sword of justice and cuts the thing in half. And when that happens, uh, there's, there's usually a lot of hurt <laughs> on both sides because one of the things about sin is that we don't like to have the true motives of our heart exposed. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you for putting up with me, especially those last few minutes. I've been doing a lot of reading out loud uh, with the boys, so my voice is kind of shot right now. But thank you so much, and um, I'll see you next time.